listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Brothers and sisters, we're going to continue on in 2 Timothy. And so if you have your Bibles, grab them and turn to that book. And we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 7. So we started this series thinking about the Great Commission and asking the question, well, what does this look like? And, and Paul helpfully throughout this letter articulates what this looks like on the ground for the church. And so Paul is going to go back after this theme of what it looks like to serve the Lord. And so let's read God's word together. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Oh, Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word now. Amen. So we're going to start with this word, repetition. We, we repeat what is important. We repeat what is important. So there's some things in life that cannot be just said once or twice or a handful of times. They're, they're so important. We need to repeat them over and over and over again. So think about this. Husbands and wives repeat the same words to each other over and over and over again. What do they say? I love you. I love you. I love you. And why do they do this? Because this relationship, this bond between a husband and a wife is so important that the, their emotions, their feelings cannot be set aside back in the background unexpressed. They have to come forward. They need to be expressed again and again and again. It's not sufficient that you stand up on your, your wedding day and say before a great crowd that you love this person, you commit to love this person, but it needs to be said again. So it's important. So we repeat it. And as parents, we repeat what is important. We have these little ones gathered around us. And we repeat these same commands over and over again. And we repeat the same commands over and over again, not because we like the sound of our own voices, but because we realize that our children need to learn about generosity and love and, and good manners and, and principles. And so we repeat the truth again and again. And as we think about it right now, we're repeating the same truth again and again. God's called elders and pastors to be on repeat. We show up to church, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, and we hear the same ancient truths repeated. We talk about Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming. We talk about the forgiveness of sins. All of this again and again and again because it's important. And we do this not because there aren't other things to talk about, but because these truths about Jesus, they, they save our souls and they, they deliver us from hell. These, these truths build up the church and they strike down our foes. These truths sanctify us. They make us mature. They, they change us. And so we repeat the truth about Jesus again and again and again. We repeat what is important. And as we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-7, through 7, 
Paul repeats what is important. This is what Paul's doing in our passage. Look at verses 1 through 3. Paul rattles off in quick succession three commands. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says, what you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men. Then he goes on to say, and share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. As we think about these commands, each one of them is a repeat. Look at verse 1. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And though we might have missed this connection ourselves, Timothy would not have missed this connection. His keen eyes would would spot the similarity in words from chapter 1. One translation helps us out, translating verse 1 like this. Be empowered by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so with that translation, we can see the similarities. Go back to chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says, God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power. And down to chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, by the power of God. Paul is subtly repeating himself. Be empowered by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Then look at verse 2, second command. He says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. Again, more repetition from Paul. This is a repeat of chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul writes, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. It's a repeat of chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul is recycling his verbs and his language here. Then go down to verse 3. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And at this point, this is just copy and paste of chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul says, but share in suffering for the gospel. So Paul's repeating and we ask, well, what does all of this repetition teach us? What we see here in our text that Paul has a burden and it's coming through. And and Paul isn't going to assume this burden or or move past this burden. He's going to work until this burden is is tattooed on on Timothy's forehead, until it's implanted on Timothy's heart. What Paul is doing here is he's preaching this very simple message. Timothy, all that matters in this present life is that you serve the Lord as the Lord desires. Timothy, all that matters in this life is that you serve the Lord as the Lord desires. And that's what Paul's going to preach to each one of us. He's going to say, brother, sister, believer, all that matters in this life is that you serve the Lord as the Lord desires. So as we think about this, the sermon can really be boiled down to one word. Commitment. Commitment. Paul wrote so that Timothy would be fully committed to the Lord's cause. And by God's grace, as we attend to this word, God's going to awaken, and not only awaken, he's going to fortify our commitment to Jesus and Jesus' mission. And brothers and sisters, there is a great need for commitment in the church today. And this passage of Scripture is going to come to us, and it's not only going to awaken us, it's not only going to fortify our commitment, but it's going to challenge our commitment. Paul is going to ask, the Holy Spirit's going to ask as the word is preached, are you committed to the Lord? Are you committed? So before we launch into our passage, we need to think a bit more about this idea of repetition. So some repetition is inherently sweet. We just can't get enough of it when the same thing is repeated over and over again. So think about this. No no sane wife complains to her husband when her husband keeps complimenting her. You're wonderful, dear. I love you, dear. Again and again and again. The, The wife enjoys it. She doesn't complain. 
But not all repetition is enjoyable like that. Some repetition grinds on us and disturbs us. Sometimes when something is repeated to us, perhaps at work we we roll our eyes and then inside our heads there's this sarcastic voice that begins to speak, gotcha, no problem, I heard that before. And other times we get angry when something is repeated to us again and again and again. And that inner voice goes public and we say, Who do you think you are? Do you think I'm an idiot? I've heard that before countless times. Why are you telling me it again? And so repetition can be a touchy subject for us. And so we need to have our hearts and our minds trained so that we might be able to receive this repetition with profit so that it would do us good. So as I was studying this week, I came across a a timeline for Timothy's life. And this is really helpful. Because we have a picture of Timothy in our minds. And our picture of Timothy goes something like this. We, we think that Timothy is this young, inexperienced, naive, immature helper of Paul. And so we often cite Paul's encouragement to Timothy from 1 Timothy to teenagers saying, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. So we have this picture of, of Timothy in our minds, this really young man. But our bubble needs to be burst. Paul takes a, a pin. If you study carefully the scriptures, the scriptures take a, a pin and pop that bubble. So think about this timeline. Timothy first met Paul sometime around A.D. 48 or 49. And so Paul was going through that part of the country to the city of Lystra and met Timothy. And Timothy might have been converted at that point. And then Paul traveled through that same region again in about the year 50, and Timothy became an official ministry partner of Paul. And so as you read Paul's letters and you read the book of Acts, you find that Timothy is with Paul throughout his ministry. He's either by Paul's side or he's on an important mission for Paul. So in 52, Timothy is with Paul in Corinth. In the years of 54 through 56, Timothy is with Paul in Ephesus. In 57, they're back in Corinth together. In 60 through 62, Paul, Timothy is by Paul's side on and off again while he's imprisoned in Rome for the first time. And then finally, in and around the year 67, Paul writes to Timothy, and this is a letter we're reading. So there are a lot of numbers right there, and they might be a blur to you, but the point is this. Timothy was an official ministry partner for Paul for some 17 years when Timothy received this letter from Paul. So we have to get this straight in our minds. This letter was written to a seasoned minister of the gospel. There is no green left on Timothy's horns, not at all. Think about it. Timothy endured persecution with Paul, not for a couple of months, but for years. He had been thrown into contentious conflict again and again and again. Timothy delivered one of the Corinthian letters to the church in Corinth, trying to sort out the mess there. Timothy preached the word for years. He'd help plant churches. he helped help raise up leaders. So we just need to let this sink in. If Paul thought Timothy, this minister for 17 years, who had stood by Paul's side through thick and thin, if, if Paul thought this guy needed to hear the same basic commands over and over again, how much more do we need to hear the same basic commands over and over again? And the truth is really simple. As long as we are on this side of glory, we need repetition as much as we can get of it. Why? Well, our zeal wanes. 
Our priorities get funny. Our direction becomes unclear. We get, we get really comfortable with where we're at. We get comfortable with our sin. And so God in his great mercy meets our need. He puts his commands on repeat in the scriptures, calling us, awakening us, refreshing us, challenging us. And so as we approach this text and all the repetition we find in it, we should do so eagerly, desiring the Lord would work in us to renew our commitment to him. So with that, we can get to work on our text. So Paul is calling for commitment, and this should raise a natural question in our minds. And we ask Paul, well, Paul, what does it look like to be committed to the Lord Jesus? What does it look like? Give me some examples. Or to put it another way, as we think about application, how can I know if I'm actually committed to the Lord's cause? How can I know if I'm living the way Jesus desires me to live? So Paul answers our questions in verses 4 through 6, and he puts three illustrations in front of us, and we'll just look at each one of these. So the first illustration is in verse 4. Look at your Bible. Paul writes, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So good soldiers are known for what? They're known for their single-minded devotion. When a soldier receives an order from a ranking officer, he does it. He doesn't question. He doesn't dispute. He doesn't delay. He doesn't complain. He promptly obeys his commanding officer. When the commanding officer comes to the the soldier and says, take the hill, the soldier doesn't respond to the commanding officer by saying, sir, I've got a, a family back at home with three children that I need to take care of. I don't think taking this hill is a great idea right now. He doesn't say to the commanding officer, sir, I've got a a property back at home. I would like to see it again. I'd like to go home and take care of it again. No, what does a good soldier do? He puts all of these matters out of his mind, and he goes and he takes the hill. He lives by the word of his commander. So entanglements are forbidden for soldiers, and they're disqualifying for disciples. I was reminded of one point in Jesus' ministry. He was traveling from town to town in the countryside of Galilee, preaching the gospel, saying the kingdom of God has arrived, repent and believe the gospel. And then he was issuing his, his, his famous summons saying, follow me. So Jesus was preaching this and, and men started gathering around him, inquiring of Jesus. And these men had their consciences pricked and they, they were setting their situations before Jesus. And so one man said this to Christ, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And another man came to Jesus and said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. As we think about this setting, here's Jesus and all these men surrounding him, bringing their situations to him. They seem rather reasonable. What's wrong with burying your father? That's honorable. That's good. What's wrong with going back home and saying goodbye to your family? That's just good manners. But listen to what Jesus says in response to these men. He says this to the first man. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And to the second, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus is there in Galilee, and he's looking for enlistments. He's the commanding officer, and he's gathering soldiers, and he's gathering soldiers. He's not interested in compromised allegiances, no matter how small that compromise is. He wasn't going to brook with half-hearted commitments. He was looking for men and women who would live to please him first. And the problem with these men is this. They said, yes, but. And Jesus will not live with the but. He just lives with the yes. So here's the Apostle Paul, and he's preaching to Timothy. 
He's saying, Timothy, you must remember your enlistment. Remember the terms that Jesus set before you. You must have single-minded devotion, just like a soldier, only saying yes. And so, Timothy, you must act like a soldier. So that's Paul's first illustration. And he follows up quickly with a second illustration. Verse 5, look there. Paul writes, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So every sport has a set of rules, and so we can think of one of the simplest sports, running. And so what are the rules of running a race? Well, there's the starting gun. You can't start before the gun sounds. And after that, when the race is started, you have to do what? You have to stay in your lane. You can't veer out of your lane. Even more, you can't cut off the corners to make the race a bit shorter for you while everybody else runs all the way around. And the most important rule of running a race is what? You've got to get your body across that finish line. So here's the question. Well, what happens when those conditions aren't met? Let's say you, you get to the finish line first in this race, but then they do an instant review and they see on lap two that you veered out of your lane for a few steps. Well, what's going to happen to that runner? Well, he's not going to get first place or second place or third place. He's going to get two letters by his name, DQ. You're disqualified. And so we see that an athlete does not simply only have to train their bodies to get into shape. They have to be disciplined to follow the rules of the game. They cannot lapse in the midst of the competition because if they lapse in the midst of the competition, they're going to be disqualified. All their training will be worthless. You can't cheat. You can't round off the corners because if you cheat, you're going to be found out and it's all for loss. So Paul is preaching again to Timothy. He's pressing on him saying, Timothy, you are in the greatest competition of all. And I've witnessed your race. You've been running well, but you can't relax, not even for a moment. You can't take a shortcut. You can't wuss out. You can't kip on a single rep. These are the rules of discipleship. You've heard them from my mouth. You've seen them exemplified in my ministry. Don't let them leave your mind. Compete according to these rules. Run like an athlete. So we must act like a soldier. We must run like an athlete. Verse 6. Paul says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So farming is notorious for long hours and hard work. And this was even more so in the ancient world. There were no combines, there were no tractors or trucks to help out the laborer in the field. No, there was the farmer out in the field laboring by the sweat of his brow day after day. The farmer would have to apply himself to his tools. When he was planting, he need, needed the hoe and the plow. And then the harvest, he needed his sickle. And none of this would be accomplished in a few short hours. It wasn't a matter of, I'll go out on Saturday on my day off and get all my farming done. It was a day after day, hour by hour, sun up till sundown existence for the farmer. And with all of these illustrations, the principle that Paul is aiming for is rather simple. If the farmer doesn't plant his crops, then he's not going to have anything to harvest. And if he doesn't have anything to harvest, he's not going to have anything to eat. Or to simplify it even further, if you don't work hard as a farmer, you're not going to be able to eat anything. And so Paul's message is coming through clearly. Timothy, you must work hard. Don't be confused about discipleship. Don't be confused about the nature of your ministry. Don't be discouraged by all the toil, all the sweat, all the labor. Expect that your back is going to hurt. Don't be surprised when you look at your hand that's full of blisters and calluses. Expect to fall into bed at the end of the night weary and tired. Timothy, you must work hard just like a farmer. We have to understand that as Paul's 
writing to Timothy, he's not writing as a straw boss. There's Paul sitting in the shade in the background, drinking a lemonade, and there's Timothy out in the field toiling away. No, Paul was a worker as well. Not once when you survey Paul's letters in the New Testament do you hear about how easy discipleship of Jesus was. Instead, we hear things like this. Paul says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work nights and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. What is Paul saying, Timothy? You must work like a farmer, day after day, hour by hour. So it's clear as we look at verses 4 through 6 that Paul is after commitment. Timothy, are you committed? Church, are you committed? And so what does this commitment look like? It looks like the the single-mindedness of a soldier. It looks like the the discipline of an athlete running his race. It looks like the hard work of a farmer day after day out in the field, sweating, laboring. But this again raises another question. We should ask, well, Paul, I'm wrestling with your words. What's entailed in this commitment? Or you can think about it like this. Well, Paul, soldiers fight battles. Athletes, they, they run races. Farmers are trying to grow a crop. What do I need to commit myself to? What am I trying to get done? What is Timothy trying to get done? And so Paul gives us an answer. And we can go back to verses 1 through 3. And as you look at our text, there's a beautiful symmetry in our text. In verses 4 through 6, there's three illustrations. And in verses 1 through 3, there's three commands. Perfectly balanced passage. So we're going to go back. We've already said that these are repeats, but we're going to go back and relook at these commands. And what we're going to find is that we're going to get greater clarity about the Christian life. So look at verse 3. Paul says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So that's copy and paste of chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul says, Share in suffering for the gospel. But now we're in a position to, to feel the weight of this command. It's interesting. Timothy must be committed. He's commanded to be committed to suffering. Timothy's relationship to suffering isn't optional. Paul doesn't write to Timothy, Timothy, be ready to suffer. Or Timothy, be willing to suffer. Or Timothy, be ready to endure suffering if it happens to come your way. It's a possibility. No, Paul says, you must suffer. He's like a doctor prescribing to Timothy this medicine. You have to take it. So we can think about it. Timothy is a soldier, and suffering is the command. Timothy is an athlete, and the rules stipulate that he must suffer to win the race. Timothy is a farmer, and the work that he must endure in the field day after day after day is what? It's suffering. Now again, we have to think about this command because it's strange. What Paul's calling for isn't some strange form of masochism. It isn't suffering for suffering's sake. When Paul says, share in suffering... I think he's saying something like this. Timothy, pick up the law and preach it. Don't soften the edge. Don't make the law blunt. Make, it, make sure it's sharp. Timothy, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Declare to one and all that there is one king and one king alone. It's Jesus Christ. He was raised from the dead. Timothy, pursue holiness. 
flee all of these different desires and run after Christ and Christ alone. Timothy, come to me, visit with me, fellowship with me. Don't let any threat turn you away. Let not stigma hold you back. Share in suffering. Why does Paul say it like this? In our day, uh, the church likes catchphrases. We like these little slogans to capture our our style of ministry. And so people call their ministry gospel-centered or missional. And if Paul used a little phrase to capture the heart of his ministry, it would be this. It would be share in suffering. That's my style of ministry, Paul would say. And why does he say this? Because when you grab hold of the law, when you proclaim the gospel, when you run after Christ, when you fellowship with the saints, you are suffering. Because when you do these things, you're encountering resistance right away from Satan, from governments, from neighbors, from family members. It happens right away when you pursue these things. For Paul, to pursue ministry is just another way to say, to share in suffering. And so Paul comes to Timothy and he comes to us and he's asking, are you committed Are you committed to this style of ministry like a single-minded soldier? Are you committed to this ministry like the athlete who's going to compete according to that rule and that rule alone? Are you committed to this ministry like the farmer who's going to stick at it day after day after day, not letting up, not turning aside, getting after the work? Are you committed? Paul continues on. Moving up a verse to verse 2, Paul gives us another command. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So interesting. As we study 2 Timothy, we find a, a family tree in 2 Timothy. Paul has fathered Timothy in the gospel. But Paul looks to the future and he wants more. As we see in verse 2, he's not just consent, content having a spiritual son. He, he's greedy. He wants spiritual grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And Paul realizes that this doesn't happen magically. There must be intentionality and focus. And and notice the formula that Paul gives us. Timothy has to invest himself in a few particular men. These men have to be faithful. And the purpose of this discipling is so that these men could go teach others. The purpose of all of this is so that there would be multiplication What we find Paul talking about is what we find in Jesus' ministry. So we think about the many scenes in Jesus' ministry. He's there preaching the gospel to thousands of people. But the reality is that Jesus spent the most of his time with 12 men, traveling back and forth, eating, sleeping, arguing, counseling, talking with 12 men. And then even within the 12 men, Jesus spent the bulk of his time with three men, Peter, James, and John. And so Paul turns his attention to Timothy and he's saying to Timothy, you, Timothy, are charged to raise up the next generation of teachers, elders, pastors in the church. It's your responsibility to spot those faithful men in the congregation of God. And then it's your job to to fill those men with doctrine, sound doctrine. I pass the gospel on to you. Now you must pass the gospel on to them. And then it's your joy, Timothy, like I'm experiencing it now, to send those men into the congregation to teach others and so that the process would continue on so that the church might multiply. And so Paul's words strike Timothy in a unique way. He is responsible to raise up the next generation of elders, pastors, teachers. But verse 2 falls on each one of us. We cannot say, well, that's just for pastors to do, raise up the next generation of pastors. 
No, it's for every disciple of Jesus because verse 2, in verse 2, we find the DNA of discipleship. Every disciple of Jesus should be aiming to make more disciples of Jesus who will in turn make more disciples of Jesus. That's our calling. This takes, very, takes place very simply, and Paul helps us. You want to make disciples? Well, focus in on a couple significant relationships in your life and begin to pour into those relationships, pouring in doctrine, pouring in prayer, pouring in friendship. And Paul's helpful here because the goal is not just to become friends. That's good and great. The goal is multiplication, that those people you pour into would turn and begin to pour into other people. So Paul's coming to Timothy, he's coming to us, and he's asking, are you committed? Are you laboring to make disciples who then can go and make more disciples of Jesus? Are you devoted to this task of making disciples like a farmer? Do you show back up to this work day after day after day? doesn't seem like any progress is being made, but you, you show back up and you commit yourself to it. Are you pursuing it like an, an athlete? This is the rule of my life. I must make disciples of Jesus. That's all that counts. Are you like a soldier, single-minded about making disciples? I need to do this. If anything's going to get done in my life, it will be this, because that's what Jesus desires and delights in. Are you committed, Paul asks? We find one last command. So we're working our way up from verse 3 to verse 2 to verse 1. Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I saved the best command for last. Timothy must be committed to the grace that is in Jesus. So everything in this text, we've looked at a lot in this text. Paul is saying, please your commanding officer. Compete according to the rules. Work hard like a farmer. Suffer. Make disciples. And what Paul is saying, all of this has to be done in reliance upon divine help. What God calls us to do, each one of us, is over our heads. Make disciples? How can I do that? That person is dead in their sins. Only the Spirit can make them alive. And, and so Paul is preaching, if you're going to do this supernatural work, you must be dependent upon supernatural help. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And this is the best command we can find in the Scriptures. Paul is saying to Timothy, move towards Christ. Timothy, Christ is a well full of life-giving water. What you need to do is go to Jesus and take another drink of him. Timothy, Paul, Paul or Timothy... Timothy, Jesus is like this great banquet with food, all that you need. Go down and sit and eat. Timothy, Christ is your strength. He is your endurance. He is your, your shield. He's your peace. You're your joy. Go and abide in him. Go and seek him. Be strengthened. And the same word comes to us. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul asks, are you committed are you committed? Will you rely upon divine help or are you going to rely upon something else or someone else or yourself? Are you going to cast down self-sufficiency? Are you going to put yourself in the way of Jesus' grace again and again and again? Are you going to be single-minded about it like a soldier? This day, I will seek the help of Jesus. Are you going to be like the athlete running your race according to the rules saying, if I'm going to run this race and finish, it's going to be by the help of Jesus. Are you going to be like it, like a hardworking farmer, showing back up to the means of grace again and again and again until your heart's refreshed and your body's strengthened? Are you committed? Are you committed to the grace of Jesus? 
And so, brothers and sisters, we repeat what is important. That's how we began the sermon. Some things we have to say more than once or twice or a handful of times. And what we find in these seven, these eight verses, verses one through seven, are truly important. They're worthy to be repeated. So we've heard the simple call. Paul's come to us. He says, all that matters in this life is that you serve the Lord as he desires. So he's saying, serve the Lord as a soldier, as an athlete, as a farmer. Make disciples, suffer, be strengthened by the grace of Jesus. So the question is, well, how are we to walk away from this sermon? What are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do? If you're a keener, you've probably noticed that we haven't looked at one verse in the text We've missed one verse. What verse is it? It's verse 7. We haven't said anything about this verse yet. And this is how we'll close. Paul begins to write, he says, Think over what I say. What do we need to do when we walk away? We need to repeat the commands that Paul just told us. Paul is commanding, he's demanding repetition. Faithful disciples of Jesus are going to take these commands home and they're going to repeat themselves, repeat them to themselves. Again and again and again. Think over what I say. Then Paul gives us this gracious promise. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul is saying as you take these commands to heart, repeating them to yourself, the Lord's going to be at work with these words. He's going to give you a, a vision for your life. He's going to show you where you need to repent. He's going to encourage you where you've been faithful. He's going to strengthen you to press on once again. Think over what I say. Repeat, because the Lord's going to use your repetition for your good. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are so thankful for your word. We need it. We need it more than gold or silver. We need it more than food and water. Your word gives us life. And so, Father, we desire to be a faithful people who go home and repeat these words to ourselves. And we trust that as we repeat, you are going to be working for our good. Oh, Father, we desire to be like the soldier, like the athlete, like the farmer. Would you bless us now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.